also just with, to continue with this exploration of, of what is meant by a well-trained heart, a well-trained mm -hmm. mind. And I know I touched on some of this yesterday, but really to continue to explore this because this is what we are aspiring to. Mm -hmm. This is what we're aiming for. And indeed, this is a, a genuine possibility for all of us. Mm -hmm. This does not, it's not the territory just of people who live on extended retreats or, you know, in monasteries. This is a territory possible for all of us. I start with just the word trained, because this is a training. You know, it, it's a commitment, it's a dedication. Um, it's something that we, we need to deeply value. We need to deeply value far more than we value agitation or busyness or anything else. We need to deeply value this. Other, the, you know, the Buddha uses the word ardency a great deal. You know, we need that enthusiasm and that passion because this well-trained mind is when we step out of the world of struggle and distress. It's when we feel a greater sense of freedom, of creativity, of engagement. It's the it's landscape in which we flourish. And there are too many untrained hearts and minds about. So one of the great arts of meditative development and a life lived with happiness and with clarity really does lie in our ability to sustain both intention and attention. That's what we've been experimenting with over the time here together, and you've probably encountered how, how difficult it is, you know, how challenging it is to sustain intention and attention, just how forgetful we can be so easily. Mm -hmm. um, that's, we should not be discouraged by that. You know, we've probably had decades of practicing a, an untrained mind and heart. So this takes some patience, it takes kindness, it takes compassion, um, it takes a lot of care. I think the people that we most admire in the world, the people we most admire in life, we, and the people who've actually affected the greatest changes in the world, you know, socially, um, you know, in terms of bringing about real transformations in justice, in, in understanding, in political change. Um, we admire them for their, their capacity to actually sustain their intention and attention. And think of some of those people that we admire, you know, whether it's Gandhi or Martin Luther King, the people that we admire, they were being able to sustain those intentions in the midst of really adverse conditions, in the midst of really difficult conditions. And what we admire about them, I think, is their steadfastness, the fact that they were undiverted they knew what their intentions were about change and transformation, and they committed to those intentions and sustained them even when much around them was against them. So they're actually kind of characterized by this sense of being undiverted and undistracted. I found this 
really deeply touching when I began to practice in a Tibetan community of refugees um, in the you know, 19, early 1970s. You know, people who had been through so much and lost so much, um, been injured so much, and yet somehow their, their intention was so steadfast in terms of their commitment to compassion, their commitment to generosity, and indeed their commitment to joyfulness in the midst of everything they had been through. And I, li I listened to one monk who'd been you know, imprisoned and very harshly treated. And the Dalai, Dalai Lama asked him, you know, what was the most difficult moment you faced? What, when did you feel you were most in danger? And he answered, he said, I was most the times I felt most in danger were the moments I felt in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. So this is that capacity for sustaining intention. We are not in those dramatic and very difficult situations, but I'm sure that most people in this room have got their own measure of challenge, you know, and their own measure of difficulty and, you know, the, what we've been through in the last few years, how important it has been to sustain intention, to sustain intention. Because all of us, in our, when our worlds have been turned upside down, it is again so easy to not keep calm and carry on. Huh? It's so easy to, to feel such turmoil inwardly. And I found this you know, hugely important during, during the pandemic and the lockdowns. You know, before, before COVID, you know, I, I lived a pretty quiet life. You know, I had lots of time of solitude, lots of time of silence, and then the lockdowns came, and my entire extended family moved in. You know, uh, you know, including two children. We were seven in a household. You know, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get enough food to feed everybody. You know, and just the intensity of that many people living together in one house. And I found it so important to get up in the morning and set my intention for the day. You know, ah, today is dedicated to patience. You know, today's dedicated to kindness. You know, today's dedicated to calming. Today's dedicated to generosity, and just really bringing that intentionality into that really kind of chaotic life that went on for a very long time um, was I, just so helpful in terms of caring for my own mind, heart, and actually being able to care for others. Being able to care for others, and we didn't just survive. I think those early months, I think we, in many ways, really did flourish. What we see in our experience is that intention and attention arise and fall together. I think it's really important to appreciate that linkage, that intention and attention arise and fall together. When intention drops away, so too does attention drop away. Yeah? If I have the intention to be present with the breathing and then I forget that intention, the attention will also drop away and I will find myself somewhere else. So these arise and fall together. When attention drops away, so too does intention. If I'm not attending to that intention, it drops away, I'm lost somewhere else, that intention will also drop away. And I think in our lives, you know, we can have so many noble intentions, 
fortunate to be generous, you know, to be patient, to be kind, to be calm, to be responsive, to be compassionate. And actually, I think feel so frustrated often when our intentions are forgotten or sabotaged. Yeah? And how often those intentions to, can be forgotten and sabotaged when we meet something that is far more predominant or more challenging, or, we, or just we just are forgetful. The greatest saboteurs, and I think this is why so much attention is given to this te territory, the greatest saboteurs of intention and attention are the veiling factors we began to touch on yesterday. These are forgetfulness factors. You know, they're forgetfulness factors. Um, you know, the craving for sensual pleasure. What do we forget when we are caught in that? And then when we're caught in that the kind of hungry mind, hungry eyes syndrome, you know, when we're leaning forward into the future, into a better moment, you know, a more perfect moment, when, when we just want more, we want more pleasure, we want more gratification, we want more excitement, we want more stimulation. We just want more. And what is forgotten when that, when that pattern is taken over? You know, we forget about contentment, we forget about sufficiency, often we forget about generosity, we forget about calm, you know, because it's such a, an agitated space. And I know many, most of you here have practiced for a long time and, you know, we kind of feel like we know all about the veiling factors, you know, we've been there, done that, you know, and, you know, we think about these are things that arise in our meditation practice and we just need to get over them and move on. They are not. These, these are at the root of all of our psychological and emotional storms. These are what keep us light from realizing the, the deep aspirations we have and you know, the life patterns and meditation patterns. And you know, in Buddhist teaching, the five veiling factors are said to be the five visible faces of greed, hatred, and delusion. And greed, hatred, and delusion are said to be the three visible faces of avidya or ignorance. So learning to cultivate intentionality, sustained intentionality, in the midst of these veiling factors is really the most direct way we have of actually beginning to uproot those, those ties, those bonds of confusion and ignorance and not seeing things as they are and distortion. This is the most direct way. And we often don't have to look very far for these veiling factors, you know. Um, uh, and, and sometimes we see them begin to fall away, and that's really important, you know. We begin to see that we're, we're much less engaged in, in, you know, searching the world for this externalized happiness. We, we begin to see that pattern begin to fall away, you know. You might see, you know, as some of the aspects of aversion, like impatience or resentment or, or jealousy or judgment, beginning to fall away. Yeah? We might see some of the agitation beginning to soften and to calm and beginning to fall away as a pattern. These are really moments to celebrate, really moments to celebrate, the sense that these are definitely not life sentences. Definitely not life sentences. We see the, how ill will sabotages and all of our intentions for, for kindness and compassion, um, 
for responsiveness, for, for patience, how the sabotages, um, how the veiling factors sabotage all of, all of this. You know, it, with agitation and worry, you know, we, we become so forgetful, you know, we become so contracted and so preoccupied, um, obsessive, ruminating, you know, really tunnel, tunnel vision as we get absorbed into the contents of restlessness and worry, um, as we get absorbed into the story of it. Dullness and dissociation, well, we just forget everything. <laughs> Basically, just forget everything. We're not here, you know? We're, we're not connected, we're not awake, we're, you know, life becomes quite camouflaged, you know? Um, and then we become actually somewhat, yeah, sort of flat flatness in the mind. And of course, doubt paralyzes. We, f we forget all about confidence. We forget about aspiration. Um, we forget about making wise choices. We forget about discernment, about what's skillful and what's unskillful. So these are very powerful patterns. And I, I think we should never underestimate these powers of, of Mara. Um, because they have such extended families. Um, yeah, they have such extended families. They're, they're, you know, such such nuanced patterns, we might say. So the Buddha, as she gives, you know, I find in teaching them more and more the, over the years that I teach more and more about these these veiling factors and about the Brahmaviharas, because there's something about looking these veiling factors in the eye, which is what the Buddha did in the story we have of his awakening. You know, that he looked these very Mara in the eye and said, I know you. I know you. Hmm? And that that actually was what, what kind of halted Mara in its tracks. Now, a meditative journey, in my experience, is a journey, uh, the, the, the development of a well-trained mind and a well-trained heart is essentially a journey through these patterns. This is where we develop the well-trained heart and mind. As we journey through these patterns, as we, we meet these patterns, as we understand these patterns, and understand that these patterns of Mara, these five patterns, this is what we do with dukkha. Huh? This is what we do with what we struggle with. This is what we do with pain. This is what we do with the unsatisfactoriness. This is what we do with change that we don't welcome. You know, this is what we do with uncertainty. We bring forth Mara. We bring forth these patterns as a way of disconnecting or somehow distancing ourselves from dukkha. Unfortunately, these patterns are also dukkha. So then we have we have what is called in the Buddhist in the Buddhist teaching sankhata dukkha, the dukkha of patterns, the dukkha of the layer that is layered, added onto the original dukkha we experience, whether it's painfulness in the body, you know, whether it's something difficult in our lives, patterns are added on to that initial dukkha we meet, and this is called sankata dukkha. So this is what is optional. This is what is really optional. When the Buddha said, I teach just one thing, that there is dukkha and there's the end of dukkha, he's not talking about, you know, a, a, a get out of jail card free around aging, sickness, and death or change. He's talking about the end of this patterning. This end of this patterning. 
So in the midst of these patterns arising, this is where it's so important to learn how to sustain intention and attention. This is where we begin to train our hearts, train our minds to gather, to calm, to, to still, to, to cultivate calm abiding in the midst of all of these, because th these are the patterns that will divert us from the, from the intentions and the values that we deeply cherish. So we learn to cultivate this well-trained heart in the midst of this, not when this is over or this has gone away, you know, or when I'm not ill anymore or when I have just lovely people in my life, you know. Or, you know, I, I remember when I was teaching in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I, I found myself saying over and over again, the moment we're in now is not a waiting room. It's not a waiting room. It's not a place where we're hanging out, waiting for something to be over so that we can begin to practice calmness and kindness and generosity. This is not a waiting room. And, you know, we can have a lot of waiting rooms in our lives, isn't it? Waiting for something to go away, waiting for something to be over, waiting for a better moment, waiting for, you know, health to return. The journey, I think, through these patterns, I think it begins with developing an emotional literacy. This simple knowing, which is such a key aspect of mindfulness, you know, the simple knowing, ah, I see you dullness, yeah? I see you restlessness, yeah? I see you craving, I see you aversion, I see you doubt, you know? Developing that, that literacy inwardly and sometimes it's a complex literacy because these patterns really interact, you know. We can have multiple hindrance attacks, you know. Multiple, you know, multiple attacks of, you know, craving, aversion, agitation, you know, all in the same moment, you know. But to develop that kind of literacy to say, I see you, I know you. I mean, that sounds so simple, but actually often these patterns come as like this kind of like huge wave, you know, like a tsunami. We're overwhelmed but I see you, I know you. And something very important happens in that seeing and knowing because it's really stepping out of the eye of the storm. It's stepping out of the eye of the storm. It's beginning to lessen the identification with what is going on. It's not the, I'm, I'm so dull, you know, or, or I'm so aversive, you know, or I am this. It's actually beginning to develop almost a dialogue with these patterns stepping out of the eye of the storm to actually know them, to actually know them. That, that step is so important in, in actually not being overwhelmed. It's a step of remembering, remembering our, our, our aspirations, remembering our intentions, remembering what is possible. Because the, the veiling factors will tell you that nothing is possible. And we ask the question, first we, we begin to, to, to know them. And this is actually learning to be a wise gatekeeper at our own hearts, you know, and a well-trained mind has got a good gatekeeper in place. You know, and, and the, the, you know, the image that's used in the Buddhist teaching on mindfulness is, a, you know, the gatekeeper standing at the doors of the city and welcoming in all of the visitors who mean to support and, and uh, support the, the residents of the city, the well-being of the city, and the wise, keeper, wise gatekeeper knowing 
and seeing the unwelcome visitors and not inviting them in. This is that quality of just, I see you, I know you, I don't need to feed you. I don't need to entertain you. I don't need to reinforce you. I see you, I know you, and taking my attention actually to the visitors actually that serve the city well. The skillful intentions, you know, the skillful aspirations, the calming, the well-being. So we ask the question, you know, we see, I see you, I know you, and then we ask, what is needed here? You know, in the midst of the craving for sensual pleasure, in the, in the midst of aversion, you know, in the midst of, of agitation and worry or dullness or doubt, we really ask the question, what is needed here? What is, what is helpful? What will begin to ease the grip of this pattern? You know, does craving need, you know, that greater cultivation of contentment? That maybe there is enough in this moment. Maybe there is, maybe I have everything I need, you know, for, for, for collectedness, for kindness, for patience. You know, I remember in the, in the first lockdown, and I've told this story before, that, you know, when, when my grandson, who was four at the time, and, we, you know, we'd go out for our hour's walk to the field every, every day. And, um, you know, one day we were going up the road, and he says, but Alma, Alma, he says, we do the same thing every day. And, you know, and my mind went to that place. It says, you know, I, I, you know there's going to be a better time. You know, that we're going to be able to do more things at some point. And I, and I was trying to reassure him. And actually, he said, I'm not complaining. <laughs> he says, I have everything I need. And, and it was so true that he, he surely did have everything he needed. And, and I thought, aha, yes, actually. Yes, maybe that's a good reflection in the midst of that craving. Because what we see in these veiling patterns is that they're all agitations. They're all agitations. So maybe we need to cultivate more contentment, more appreciation in the midst of, of the craving for sensual pleasure. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed because I've been living in London for the last three months, you know, rather than my idyllic Devon home, um, and, you know, walking a baby every day around streets, concrete streets. And, uh, you know, I found myself a little struggling with this, you know. Um, you know, I walk a baby around where I live, you know, by the river, you know. So anyway, never mind the whole story. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm a, little, I'm a little discontented here, you know, with this, this daily walking down the streets with a buggy. And then I thought, well, what, do, what is helpful here? And it's the trees. It's the trees. London has so many trees and so many different kinds of trees and, you know, such wonderful different barks on all of these trees, you know, and, and seeing the leaves beginning to fall, you know. And every street I, I go on has trees. And I find that phenomenal, these trees growing out of the concrete, you know, growing out of the pavements, you know, and flourishing, you know, and flourishing. And I have found this to be such a, you know, sort of a wonderful sort of ex exploration, you know, in those moments of feeling like this is not quite how I'd like to be. I know this is actually delightful. And actually to be able to see that anew, to really appreciate that, you know, so that kind of remembering of that intentionality. You know, in the midst of aversion, you know, what does this need? You know, knowing how much we, we suffer with aversion, how we can make ourselves ill with these veiling patterns. 
you know, what does aversion need? It needs befriending. It doesn't need more aversion to the aversion. It needs befriending, remembering ah, the possibilities of kindness, of understanding, um, of generosity, of patience. You know? We're always asking what we needed. You know, if you look at the Buddhist teaching, it's not a, a sort of one-dimensional teaching of just staying with something. You know, it's certainly not. You know that that you can find that anywhere. You know this word meditation we use. You know that as a translation of bhavana, which actually is to cultivate, to cultivate, to bring into being, yeah? to cultivate, to bring into being, and we really need to be so aware of what is being cultivated moment to moment. You know? Because if we're not cultivating the skillful and the wholesome and the liberating and the healing, it's most likely that we're going to be cultivating one of these veiling factors. You know, quite unconsciously and quite unintentionally. But just that reality that something is always being practiced in every moment. And so beginning to cultivate and beginning to, to practice this foundation of sustaining, of applying and sustaining intention and attention in all of our moments of forgetfulness. You know, sometimes it, 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 the landscape can be so, feel so big and feel overwhelmingly big. But then we remember that sometimes the, we're actually just committing to being with one breath at a time. You know? We're just committing to being with one step at a time. And we're learning in that development to this art, this, this true art of, of sustaining intention and attention. This takes so much judgment out of our lives. It takes so much blame out of our lives. And, and, and it is actually beginning to uproot, uproot, uproot the veiling patterns. Attitude is, is so important here. Um, the attitude of kindness, the attitude of caring, you know, the, the attitude of being generous inwardly as we begin this practice. The path has a direction and it really is an ending of distress and awakening. To read you something from the Dignakaya that I, I didn't translate very well yesterday. But the Buddha says, when there is appreciation, joy is born. When the mind is joyful, the body calms down. When the body calms, it feels happiness. And being happy, the mind gathers. Hmm? Being happy, the mind gathers. I'm going to repeat that again. When there is appreciation, joy is born. When the mind is joyful, the body calms down. When the body is calm, it feels happiness. And being happy, the mind <coughs> gathers. So this is quite an important roadmap, I think, for us all. Because I, I think, you know, in, in this culture, you know, we, I think we have a, a perfect storm of conditions that really doesn't lean, incline towards this. You know, we, we have a, many people have a very well-developed work <coughs> ethic, you know. And we, we're good workers, you know, we're good at working on things. Um, we have images of perfection about how we should be. Um, 
And we can transfer all of this to our path. You know? That now I'm on a path of working on things. You know? That's not what actually the Buddha is saying here. He's not working on the veiling factors. He's cultivating the lovely that begins to uproot the veiling factors. And I think that is such a, a change in orientation for many people, you know, that rather than sitting down in a cushion and rolling up your sleeves and gritting your teeth and getting to work, you know, um, you, you, you actually sit down on your cushion or you go into your day and say, how do I cultivate appreciation? How does this calm the body? How does this actually allow for a body of, of well-being, a body of joyfulness? And how does this actually allow for the mind to begin to gather and be able to sustain intention and attention? Through the willingness to apply and reapply attention and intention, we begin to see the emergence of the capacity to sustain intention and attention, to be undiverted. And I think this has profound implications not just for our practice, but for our lives. It has really major implications for, for how we live and how we move through this life. A well-trained mind, uh, no longer governed by Mara, has the capacity to sustain intention, but also has the capacity to think clearly, you know, to think creatively, to think reflectively. Um, and to sustain, you know, the three wise intentions that the Buddha values so much, of kindness and compassion and non-clinging. Yeah? Beginning to sustain those intentions in our lives and in our hearts, uh, intentions that can guide our speech and our thought and our actions. And they too have extended families, because we really see that this well-trained heart and mind genuinely is a friend, it's, it's not something we are apprehensive about. It not, it's not something that feels unreliable. It's something that allows us really to, to be an oasis in this life. You know, to be an oasis in this life. At the end of the Vietnam War, um, when so many people were fleeing Vietnam in, in very dangerous journeys, flimsy boats, pirates, very dangerous journeys, Thich Nhat Hanh said that if if there was one person in a boat who was calm, who was collected, it could make the difference between life and death for everyone else on the boat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.